welcome to episode 208 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, listeners. For our podcast topic this week, we're going to explore the variety of reasons why we might be looking at the end of the web as we know it, and we feel fine at least as an open global phenomenon, the end of it. This episode is inspired by an essay that was part of a series of predictions put forth at the beginning of this year by Nesta, which was formerly known as the National Endowment for Science, Technology, and the Arts. Uh, It's a UK innovation foundation uh, that explores trends, social movements, and technological breakthroughs, and uh, funds innovation opportunities. So this essay about the, quote, splinter net, we'll give them a a clever point there, um, had some pretty interesting takeaways, I think, and they were kind enough to provide us with some audio as well, And I will play a uh, short clip of the uh, main thesis of this end of the web as we know it. With domestic and geopolitical tensions rising, governments are finding it increasingly hard to function amid a constant barrage of uncontrollable information and potential cyber attacks, making them grow more wary both of the Internet's influence and their ability to control it. The fallout from this means we are facing the prospect of countries around the world pulling the plug on the open global internet and creating their own independent networks. We might be about to see the end of the World Wide Web as we know it. With globalisation under attack, the ultimate bastion of borderlessness, the global internet, might very well be one of the biggest scalps taken by the newly emerging world order heralded in by Brexit and Trump. If a global orthodoxy of free trade, soft power and international organisations is overpowered by belligerent nations and isolationism, the web will inevitably be swept away with it. So that's, that's a pretty big statement, but, but one that we've explored in various iterations uh, on, on the digital life. Uh, and, and we'll get into some of the specifics around... Uh, sort of the difficulties with the open web in a little bit. But just as a thesis, Dirk, I mean, it, has it come to that? I mean, we've, uh, you know, everyone was, uh, I think, a little surprised by Brexit and further surprised by the turn that America has taken with uh, a, a more uh, sort of self-centered look uh, at, at our what, what our country should be. Uh, and 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 I've never really imagined the the internet as as a bastion of globalism. But when you think about it, it it really is that uh, that open uh, free exchange of information that I suppose in in some sort of utopian sense we thought would would provide that level of information to to people in, in countries who, you know, couldn't necessarily access uh, the, the same sort of freedoms that we have here. And, and in, in a lot of ways, that, that open Internet is, um, you know, for better or for worse, uh, representative of, of that kind of thinking. 
So, so does this resonate like just on a top level, Dirk, does this, does this thesis resonate with you, uh, from, from the folks here, uh, at, at Nesta? Yeah, I think it's something that the trends, if you look at the trends and hypothesize where they could lead, this is one conclusion that is, is fairly logical. You know, they predicted happening in 2017. I think there's no chance of that. Um, they also predicted in a very frothy way, you know, very exciting. And I think the reality of it for most people would be far less mundane. So right now, you know, I can get wikipedia.com. Um, if I'm, you know, whatever, um, searching someone German, I might instead be taking to wikipedia.de and reading the biography in German, and then my browser is translating it for me. The, the quote-unquote closed internet that we're talking about is one where I, I don't have access or easy access in the same way to wikipedia.de. Like, that's its own thing. It's not in this gigantic stew of everything. Um, you know, sort of analogous to, it used to be with television channels, like we had access to ABC, CBS, NBC, you know, us old guys when we were young. But we had no clue what the hell was going on in Great Britain, in Germany. Like, it was just a, a different communication network there. I, I think what we're talking about is more similar to that. And, you know, does it really matter if we don't have access to all of those quote-unquote channels? I, I don't think it does. Now, you know, in more totalitarian regimes in, in other governments or places around the world, then it might be a little stickier than that. But I think for us in the United States, I think for most people in the free world, if you know, the set of circumstances that, that ended up, you know, sort of balkanizing the internet would take place. I, I don't think it will be that big of a deal. It, you know, it, it sounds a lot scarier and, and more oppressive as well as impressive in the framing from Nesta than it would be in reality. So I'm going to play this second clip, which talks a little bit about some of the ongoing problems that, that we're, um, experiencing right now with uh, the open internet, and, and then we can riff on that for a little bit. Many cybersecurity experts warn about the lackluster defence of everything from air traffic control towers and voting machines to nuclear plants. One well-placed attack could do more damage than the most aggressive of traditional military campaigns, at a fraction of the cost. Because of the high degree of uncertainty surrounding cyber capabilities, Know your enemy is a hard adage to follow if potential culprits and their capabilities are so tough to track. It has become impossible for governments to completely shield their countries from cyber attacks. The growing urge to control the internet has also become apparent over the influence of so-called fake news. Distorting public opinion and fact as a manipulation technique is nothing new. It's been used since Roman times. But the relentless pace and scope with which the internet allows information to disseminate is quite unprecedented. Governments and the media, who have themselves often swapped truth for clicks, are having an increasingly hard time stemming the flow of biased or misleading news stories. So the democratic process suffers. So I, I like the way they frame up those, those two sort of very significant problems that, you know, we've covered at length here at, at the digital life. Uh, you know, the first one being the idea that uh, cyber warfare, sort of uh, low-grade, uh, constant cyber attacks, uh, cyber criminality, 
that this is only beginning uh, to take shape. So a uh, fine example of that is uh, the uh, denial of service attack that uh, happened on, on the East Coast uh, last year uh, based on uh, a, a malware-infused botnet just essentially DVRs and and clocks and cameras and who knows what else attached to the internet and used as sort of uh, slave bots to uh, uh, you know send all this traffic and take down um, uh, the servers from a, a company called Din, uh, which provides uh, domain name services. Um, but but we're talking here about a uh, a growing level of uncertainty that that comes along with with the internet being open. So so I think this was an you know an international based attack, um, and it makes it um, it makes it almost seem rational uh, that you would have an America first internet. I hesitate to call it that, but that's the the trend Timely. line. Timely. That is the trend line, right? So, uh, you know, another factor uh, that they point out in this essay, which uh, is sort of frightening, is that the NSA has sort of uh, baked into its uh, cyber spying the um, uh, some of the uh, sort of hesitation from 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 other countries for sending their their traffic through servers in the United States. So the NSA has access to the pipes that that move the bits and bytes from from other nations. And all of a sudden, uh, when you're sending information across, uh, you, you know, the United States to get where it needs to get, uh, you are subjecting yourself uh, to to the cyber spying capabilities of uh, the NSA. So so that's that's one bucket there. Um, so, so let's talk about that a little. I mean, is that, is it time to create the, you know, uh, you, you point to the, uh, we can point to the Chinese with their great, the great firewall of China where they keep everything under wraps and, and well controlled. Is, is it time for, uh, you know, a war, uh, not a war, a, a wall on the, on the southern border of the internet yeah. So what China's doing is is different, I think, than than what Nesta's talking about. What China's doing is basically censoring, filtering the internet. They're not. They have not nationalized the internet, where they've closed it off, and there's a Chinese version of the internet that's native and and specific and limited to China. Um, so from that perspective, I don't think the Chinese model is the one that we're looking at. I mean, they're coming from the perspective of the internet being used as a weapon, right? So whether it be um, cyber warfare, cyber terrorism, or, you know, things, I mean, I guess you could call things like fake news cyber terrorism, but yeah, it's just, just a different flavor. Um, you know, they're talking about trying to, trying to address that by walling off your stuff, basically, um, which for countries who are not the United States would also allow them to wall off from the NSA, among other uh, foreign and potentially malignant actors. Uh, you know, as we've talked about before on, on the show for years now, uh, the, the way to, to be safe on the internet is to get off the internet. And that doesn't mean just nationalize it, because look, if we talk about terrorism, most terrorism in the United States is domestic terrorism. Uh, it's, it's not done by someone who's snuck in from Syria. It's done by someone who's pissed off in Oklahoma. 
so the nationalization at that level, I don't think is going to get us there. I mean, it, it certainly from a risk mitigation perspective is going to eliminate, you know, some some international actors. But, you know, if, if the history of terrorism is any guide, that's not going to solve it. Um, what we need is to is to be separated, is to be in, in a context where um, again, the, the metaphor I've used in the past is just like. Uh, people who are dealing with viruses in real life. You know, you get into a special suit, you go into a safe room to get prepped, then you go into the dangerous room, you do your stuff in the dangerous room, then you go into the safe room, you get totally, you know, washed off. I mean, that's not sophisticated way of, of, of communicating the technology, but then you get out of your safe suit again and, you you know, you go back into the safe, into the normal space. And even a nationalized internet isn't going to behave that way. Like, to make the internet really safe is going extra steps, extra steps that turn the internet, and this is, I think, the more interesting insight, and I don't think was part of the Nesta piece, that turns the internet into something that is not instantaneous, that your, your stuff is going through a filtration and a washing process before it gets to you, or before it's got, gone from you to someone else, um, on a level where it's truly washed and truly checked uh, for lack of a better word it's not happening now so yeah i mean from from the standpoint of fear and risk mitigation the nationalization strategy is a possibility but what we really need is to eliminate the instantaneousness of the internet if, if safety is our goal if we're saying we want to eradicate cyber warfare and cyber terrorism forever we'll get ready for a world that's not instantaneous uh, in terms of our access to uh, information yeah, and I think I, I think the the last last point they were uh, making in that audio clip we heard earlier was that uh, interestingly that democracy uh, can suffer as a result of misinformation. You know, whether you're calling it fake news, propaganda, um, uh, however you want to frame it, that uh, information is not necessarily sunshine if it's not, you know, not true information. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that I've ever viewed, uh, you know, sort of closing off um, information flow as as a good thing or or even as a potentially good thing. Uh, but, you know, the the connection between information, you know, free information flow and the ability to find whatever it is you might need uh, seems seems like a good, you know, seemed like a good, you know, in, in today's atmosphere, um, finding whatever information you want, especially if it's sort of specially tailored lies to, you know, your particular uh, taste, you know, that that. Uh, it's obviously not such a good thing. Yeah, but John, that freedom is an illusion, right? I mean, all, all of the free internet that is out there is some subset of all of the possible things that could be out there, right, necessarily. So, um, you know, I mean, when we have a conversation, you are giving me an edited portion of all of the information you could possibly giving me. You know, you're not, you're not telling me about the luxurious shower you took this morning. You're telling me about something different. Something it it that, was indeed luxurious. Something that, that for, for, for you, you think is more um, appropriate to the context of our relationship. So I, I think it's already a myth that there's this free open internet and, and changing it is this, this crush on democracy. I mean, yes, there's some 
manifestations of closed walled um, approaches to internet-like infrastructures that would get into the despotic and the dystopian. But I don't think it's inherent in doing so because the internet as we know it now is edited, is limited. There's content that we don't have access to. Uh, and content I don't need access to, right? I mean, the government, I mean, let's go to the extreme. The government, um, you know, is, is, is relentlessly preventing child pornography from being on the internet. I think that's a good call. I think it, it's, it's protecting people. It's content that I don't think people need to see in terms of being psychologically healthy. But somebody's made a decision and somebody's taken that content and they've moved it the hell off. What we're talking about is a different level, different flavors, different types of censorship. But let's not kid ourselves. Censorship is happening already. It's a total illusion that's this free, open, wonderful. It's not, it's not, it's not. Yeah, what we're talking about here are further limits, further edits, but maybe those edits aren't bad. Why do we assume that the things that are going to happen with it are not in our best interests? Um, and it certainly won't be the end of democracy as we know it, I don't think, unless the, the zaniness that's happening at the highest levels of our government gets a hell of a lot worse than it is today with you know the president's shenanigans. Yeah, I think there's a... An interesting secondary um, uh, element to this, which which is almost a call it cyber nationalism, right? So the creation of independent networks based on physical world geographies that correspond to cyberspace. Now, in theory, we have some of this already, but we also have. Uh, um, international uh, sort of server farms. You, you don't really know where your data is, or, I mean, most of it anyway. Um, there, there are certain laws in, in Europe that require um, uh, health data to be handled in a certain way uh, within, within the, the borders of uh, uh, European nations. And, uh, you know, there are other countries that have laws like that as well. But from, from an infrastructure standpoint... I don't think that that we're um, that we have the same level of attention that we would to geographic borders, and I see that um, uh, sort of the the physical world uh, manifestation of 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 nationalism is in in some ways uh, infecting or influencing. Uh, the way the next level of of digital um, digital life is going to evolve, and as unexpected as I found, you know, this uh, recent trend against uh, globalism, uh, I I find this this uh, sort of cyber uh, bifurcation uh, also to be unexpected. Very interesting. Um, I always thought that. Both globalism and uh, call it cyberspace would be the driving forces of our future, and now I'm seeing nationalism and geographic space as being, uh, you know, at least counterpoints, if not uh, more influential, at least in the short term. It may have positive unintended consequences, though, right? I mean, hundreds of years from now, the EU is going to be one entity. You're not going to have Germany and France as separate countries. It's going to be one thing. It's just a question of 
how long of a time arc is it before that happens and what are the triggering events? Something like this is one of the things that could start to accelerate things more in that direction where people are like, look, you know, the Germans look at the French and the French look at the German. They say, we don't need our whole separate things. Look, let's get one EU thing. We're going to get the EU internet. And it could, um, you know, that's one sort of unintended consequence of this that could actually help to diffuse nationalism. And make no mistake, I mean, nationalism, I, I would posit nationalism was the most destructive ideological force of the 20th century. Um, and it's uh, one that's been on the decline. Recently, it's been a little bit on the uprise. We're a little bit of a pushback with Brexit and America First and, and right-wing things in some other countries. But, um, you know, in the long now of things, nationalism is on the decline. It is going away. Maybe things like this will, will bring countries that already are moving towards coming together in, in multinational um, structures to do so more aggressively, more wholeheartedly, more holistically. Um, it may not work out that way, but it may. So um, I'm, you know, I, I'm not concerned. I'm not scared of if the internet goes towards a more nationalistic scheme, A, because I think for most people in the free world, the consequences of that are, are likely to be de minimis. And second of all, I think it could be a trigger that reduces nationalism as sort of cabals of countries come together in, in that way and possibly in additional ways as a consequence. Yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting take. I think I'll, I'll, I'll wind up with this final thought that, uh, you know, one of the huge fears of uh, security around the Internet of Things comes precisely because of malware and botnet, you know, uh, uh, attacks that are not nece necessarily from your country of origin. So I don't know whether a uh, U.S.-only Internet would, would provide a better infrastructure for, you know, some of the promise that comes along with, you know, the Internet of Things, making some of that uh, more secure, more possible, uh, connected uh, devices and sensors uh, being at least somewhat protected. But, um, you know, there's certainly the possibility that a more sheltered, uh, more controlled Internet could provide uh, the underpinnings for that as well. Hmm. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com. That's just one L in the digital life and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody. So it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you want to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. -T. And of course... The whole show is brought to you by Involution Studios, which you can check out at goinvo.com. That is G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at dmeemeyer, and that's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. Thanks so much for listening. So that's it for episode 208 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>